Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. Remember that Let's Talk Micro is available on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Amazon Music, Pandora, Good Pods, whatever you listen to your podcast, you can find Let's Talk Micro. I am also on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, and on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1. So go ahead and follow. I always like to post pictures of organisms and give updates as to when the next episode is coming out. You can, you know, follow, leave any feedback, any uh, podcast topic suggestions. You know, they are more than welcome. If you haven't checked out the previous episode, go ahead and do so. It was an interview episode with Dr. Ayesha Khan. Um, it was about Stenotrophomonas maltophilia and some challenges that the, it has in the lab. As you know, Stenotrophomonas maltophilia is a gram-negative run. It's a non-fermenter. Um, it is seen in, you know, in ICU patients. You know, it can survive in hospital equipment. It has a high level of intrinsic resistance for antibiotics. So there are many challenges. In this study, you know, some Stenotrophomonas maltophilia isolates, they were tested in three different automated systems, and then they were compared against a reference method. So that's what the episode is about, you know, about how this, how did the instruments perform. And also, you know, we talked about breakpoints and the challenges with that and some testing recommendations, because if the systems do not perform well, I mean, we need to make sure that maybe that result needs to be verified. So it was a good episode. You know, some good information about Stenotrophomonas maltophilia. So if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. It is episode 40. Today we have another interview. Uh, this time we are interviewing someone all the way from Australia. So Dr. Charlene Keller. She is the head of discipline for microbiology and immunology and the Deputy Director of the Marshall Center for Infectious Diseases Research and Training at the University of Western Australia in Perth, Australia. So she came to the podcast and she, you know, we discussed an, an, an article that she published in the Australian Society of Microbiology on May 2021. So, you know, she does a lot of research with Neisseria so we talked about Neisseria gonorrhea and all the other species, you know, the the ones that we consider them commensal, you know, we call them the non-pathogenic Neisseria. So we talked about this and how, you know, some species are seen in uh, dental caries about if we see some species, you know, in genital sources that it should be considered significant. You know, we also talked about a relationship between Neisseria gonorrhea and lactobacillus. She also talked about an uh, uh, interesting mechanism, a DNA-dependent mechanism of Neisseria species that can actually kill Neisseria gonorrhea. So there's some good, good information about Neisseria gonorrhea, Neisseria meningitis, and the non-pathogenic Neisseria as we refer to them in the lab. You know, we don't think much about these, you know, right? We see gonorrhea in the lab, we proceed accordingly. You know, we do our testing, we identify it, you know, we provide susceptibilities. 
you know, we do meningitis, and then the other Neisseria, typically we just report them as non-pathogenic Neisseria. You know, we do a better lactamase, we typically don't do susceptibilities on them. So we don't think much about them. Uh, but however, you know, there's some good information in this article that she discusses in the interview. Um, once again, Dr. Charlene Kaler from the University of Western Australia. So let's go ahead and listen to the interview. So today uh, we have a guest to discuss a research article titled Neisseria Species and Their Complicated Relationships with Human Health. This was published in the Journal of Microbiology Australia from the Australian Society of Microbiology on May 2021. So here in, in Let's Talk Micro, we have Dr. Charlene Kaler. She's the head of discipline for microbiology and immunology, and also the deputy director of the Marshall Center for Infectious Diseases Research and Training at University of Western Australia. Dr. Kaler, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Okay, thank you very much for the invitation, Lewis. I'm uh, grateful for it and pleased to be here. Uh, you're welcome. So um, let's start with um, so let's start with an introduction and what kind of work does the Marshall Center does? Okay, so the Marshall Center Infectious Disease was set up uh, when Barry Marshall won the Nobel Prize in two thousand and five, um, and the center has been running since two thousand seven. Um, we have about twenty academics there that work on a variety of infectious agents. Um, anywhere from some parasitic diseases, uh, tropical microbiology, um, sexually transmitted infections, and of course, Helicobacter pylori, which is what Barry uh, won his Nobel Prize for. Um, so let's go ahead and, and talk about the, the article. Um, can you do a, a brief summary of it? Okay. So, um, yes, my area of expertise has been in the uh, Neisseria genus. And uh, as your listeners are well aware, Neisseria genus is really interesting. It uh, consists of two well, really well-known pathogens, Neisseria meningitis and Neisseria gonorrhea, and a variety of commensal Neisseria species, which you may not be aware of. Um, those are, are all obligate human colonisers. And so my area of interest has been really uh, devoted over the last 30 years of my career looking at the pathogenicity of Neisseria meningitis and trying to understand how it causes disease and more recently on Neisseria gonorrhea and then even more recently still really looking at how we uh, now understand the role of commensal Neisseria species in human health and disease. So um, as I was reading this article, it says that uh, that Neisseria species in the female genital area should be investigated as a potential pathogen. Can you talk more about this, please? Well, so one of the very interesting things that um, we kind of not really paid much attention to is that some of these other commensal Neisseria species have really important roles um, in the development of other types of um, chronic uh, diseases, and one of those is dental disease. So Neisseria subflavor is actually a foundation colonizer. It's really sticky. It sticks to your teeth, 
And so because it has that capacity of sticking to your teeth directly, it then becomes an organism around which other microorganisms uh, actually start to build on top of it. And that is basically what dental plaque is. It's a mixture of these Neisseria species plus our major dental pathogens um, that are involved in causing dental caries and eventually leading to rot. So really there, Neisseria is playing this really uh, important role in the establishment of dental caries and then all the uh, pathogenic organisms coalesce around that to create that plaque structure, which is then going to change the metabolism of the plaque to be producing more acid, and that is what starts eroding teeth and causing dental. You know, like as far as us in the you know in the lab, we you know we we get the culture, we put it on media, we grow it, and then we look at it, and then based on what we have, we report it. You know, if it's pathogenic. You know, we go that way of identifying it, susceptibilities have indicated. So with this organism, so now that you mentioned that, you know, it causes, you know, with dental, dental caries. And so if we get it in, in, in a source like this, should we properly identify it and perform susceptibilities on it? Look, I don't think so. I mean, basically, dental caries is not a condition that you, you treat with antibiotics. Um, and so really, I think this is much more about uh, the basic biology of the species and thinking a little bit around how we might think of early biomarkers to detect the risk of forming dental caries. And that's a big um, investigative area uh, in research at the moment, is trying to understand how you would um, actually identify children at, at very early stages with increased risk of formation of dental caries because we know that we have a very high level uh, currently of children with um, uh, dental caries in the paediatric population. So even when children these days are getting their first set of teeth, we know that there is a larger group now that is going to hospital for medical interventions because their teeth have rotted. And so thinking about how to actually create early tests and, and therefore bringing it to the fore of the attention of the parents about how to manage the oral health of their children from a very early age is really important. And so one of the questions arises is that if Nicera subflavor is so early on as a coloniser being important for establishing that early age dental caries, whether having a test, a simple test around its early identification might lead to an association with risk around formation of dental caries. So looking at it as an early, early intervention marker might be a good, good thing to think of. Okay. And I just, I just wanted to, um, I just want to clarify, because when I was thinking about, you know, the susceptibility, so what if we get it from, if we see it in a genital source? So the urogenital tract is, is really an interesting uh, mucosal surface in itself and its biology is radically different. Uh, every mucosal surface of the human body has its own microbiome and they are all characteristically colonised by a different range of microorganisms uh, based on the conditions that are at each surface. 
So when we look at the urogenital tract, one of the very interesting things that's coming out of all of the research around the microbiome and the natural health of the urogenital tract, and by and large, most of that material is coming from studies on human, uh, on female urogenital health and vaginal health. Um, we're finding here that um, Neisseria species are, are unusual interlopers into that space. Typically, in those microbiome studies, they, they see Neisseria as a transient, low abundant colonizer. The species that are there are really understudied. We, we understand that Neisseria gonorrhea, when it's present, is clearly a pathogen. And its only mode of interaction with the human host is as a pathogen. It causes pain and inflammation and damage. So it's always in that role in the urogenital tract. And the question is whether any of the other Neisseria species could create that kind of effect as well. And one of the things that has happened more recently over the last five years is the appearance of Neisseria meningitidis in this unique uh, microbiome to become a pathogen there. So we're now seeing a urogenital isolate of Neisseria meningitidis causing outbreaks of urethritis in the US particularly. And there's a lot of interest in surveillance networks around the world to, to see if there are other instances of this particular lineage appearing. So the more we look, what we found, though, is that Neisseria meningitidis has been a transient, low abundant colonizer of the urogenital tract. Now people are looking, they start reporting that they do see a very low level of Neisseria meningitidis in urogenital secretions um, from various people with certain risk behaviours and that it can cause urethritis even uh, if it's not belonging to that particular lineage. So anyone who's in a medical diagnostic laboratory, I think it's really important if you see some other diplococcus and if you have, that it's not positive as Neisseria gonorrhea, pursuing it and understanding whether it's Neisseria meningitis is really important for our understanding of how we see transmission networks appearing for these species. The most important point of all of that is that Neisseria gonorrhea is not just staying in the urogenital tract anymore. We now see that Neisseria gonorrhea is actually colonizing the pharynx, which is usually the home for Neisseria meningitidis. And it's taken a while. There's been some really big studies done now, but we've come to understand that Neisseria gonorrhea can hang around in the nasopharynx for at least uh, six to 12 weeks. And that actually is sufficient to enable it to use that site as a mode of transmission as well. So as I was reading the article, you know, there was a mention about, you know, a relationship between uh, Neisseria gonorrhea and lactobacillus. Can you talk more about that, please? So coming back to the... Um, holistic way we look at uh, samples now. If, if we think about uh, the human body, each site has a, its own microbiome. And when we look at the urogenital tract, the vaginal microbiome typically has about eight large community structures. And a really healthy community structure 
is predominated by lactobacillus. And that actually is because the urogenital tract of females is at a low pH, it secretes a lot of acid and it contributes to this sort of natural immunity state, which is keeping the pH low, um, colonizing the surfaces and really keeping out all these pathogens. So lactobacillus is a competitor, which is a good one for us, which excludes or inhibits Neisseria gonorrhea. And we know that that's actually um, a thing because we know that if you are exposed to Neisseria gonorrhea, you have a naturally healthy microbiome, you're not necessarily going to contract that infection initially uh, because your microbiome is sitting there helping to exclude its colonisation so it can't establish itself. But if there are other disruptions, and this is particularly in women where you see menstrual cycles coming into play and that changes the microbiome, then that actually leads to this ability of the gonococcus to take advantage of this disruptive environment, then it actually colonises. So there is a lot of work around at the moment thinking about whether or not you can harness that effect, which we observe naturally, and thinking about whether, you know, using lactobacillus um, as a coloniser for those women who may have other disrupted microbiome states, such as those who have um, bacteriovaginosis, uh, whether they could go on to some sort of probiotic therapy and that might actually restore the balance and, and help them protect themselves from this particular STI. Um, can you talk about more about um, the DNA-dependent mechanism of Neisseria species that can kill Neisseria gonorrhea? So this has been a, a really recent um, discovery. This was made by Madeline So in the USA just a few years ago. We've known forever that species are really interesting because what they have is this natural ability to take up DNA and incorporate it into their genome. And this is a way of, you know, passing traits between the different bacteria species. And this actually, we followed a lot because we can see them sort of taking a trait from one bacterial species and adding it to their own collection, then using that to establish themselves in a better niche. But what she showed, which is really interesting, was that these, um, these uh, exchanges between Neisseria species could also be deleterious in that if the bacteria are growing very closely together in a, a single clump of cells, they actually use the machinery that was naturally being used to uh, secrete the DNA to actually inject it physically into the cells of the other species. And that actually is toxic because you then inject all of these um, other things in there with them and the DNA um, basically incorporates itself, gets chopped up into little bits and effectively kills uh, the, the, um, the other species. So we found that the commensal Neisseria species use this particular feature to kill 
not only Neisseria gonorrhea, but Neisseria meningitidis. Uh, and uh, that is something that people are actively looking at there to see whether or not you could, again, use these naturally occurring commensal Neisseria species as a, a potential probiotic that might prevent um, colonisation uh, by gonorrhea in particular. Yeah, um, yeah, this is definitely, you know, very interesting as far as, you know, us in the lab, we, you know, we work with them and, you know, a lot of times we don't think much about them and, you know, now the the audience can, you know, learn all this about them. Like typically, mostly we, you know, we, if we identify it as one of these, like, you know, Neisseria species, most of the time they get reported as like a non-pathogenic Neisseria. And that's it. I mean, sometimes, you know, if the source, if it's like pure, you know, we go as far as maybe doing like a beta lactamase test and then we report that. But definitely, you know, they have, there are all these interesting facts about them. Well, I think one of the last facts I'd, I'd like to uh, sort of iterate is that not only do we see these Neisseria species in those two areas, that pharynx and your genital tract, but remarkably, people are starting to see them as key biomarkers to dysbiosis in other states associated with the lung. So I've seen studies where people have been looking at cystic fibrosis patients who, as you know, they generally have um, problems with their mucus secretion and they succumb to acinetobacter or pseudomonas infections. But they're now finding that one of the key genuses that turn up very early on in this is Neisseria lactamica. So what we're, <laughs> and so what we're seeing is that I think there's a broader role in understanding these low abundant transient colonizers. I, I tend to feel that the more work comes out in these areas, we're going to see that they are almost like the canary in the coal mine. You don't expect to see them when everything's happy and your microbiome's functioning properly, but you might expect to see them when something is going wrong. And this is now becoming a bit of a theme. I, I work with a, a world-renowned expert in, um, in this area, Mark Nickel, and um, it's, it's really fascinating because you can see in that field, Neisseria species turns up regularly as one of those key uh, genuses where you say that's not where they should be and they've turned up all of a sudden. So there's there's going to be a lot more interest in trying to broaden our understanding of this, this genus uh, into the commensals and how all of this leads us to an understanding about what is a happy, healthy microbiome, what is actually a dysfunctional one, how that leads to this idea that you're headed towards uh, a severe or deleterious illness in all sorts of different uh, spheres. And um, are you currently working on any research on Neisseria gonorrhea? Uh, so my, my recent work on Neisseria gonorrhea has been around the genomic epidemiology of Neisseria gonorrhea in Western Australia. Uh, as I was saying to Lewis earlier on, uh, Western Australia is a fascinating place in which to do this kind of research because we are the most isolated uh, city in the world in Perth. Uh, we're equidistant from New, uh, New York, uh, whichever way you fly around the globe. And 
and uh, and even within our own country, it's um, a uh, four-hour flight to the top of our state and a five-hour flight to the East Coast. And so we are actually uh, a, a very large state. We're the second largest state after Siberia in Russia. And so it's a huge, huge landmass. But we're very sparsely populated. We have metro areas and when we have remote communities, mostly around mining. And those people um, in those areas are typically our Indigenous populations. So I did a lot of genomic. Uh, and what we know from surveillance operations here is that we have relatively low levels of, of gonorrhea in our metro areas because we're adequately treating them with antibiotics and detecting them early and stopping transmission. But out in remote areas, they have very uh, sporadic access to healthcare. Uh, typically, it requires someone to go out um, in a mobile van um, once a week or once a month, depending on what that rotor looks like. Um, and so you have to be ill on the day that person, that, that van arrives. And so if you have some kind of illness, you won't get treated initially. And if you don't feel the symptoms on the day, you may not be treated for a month. And so we're seeing a disconnect here about how, what the rates of gonorrhea are in those remote areas. In fact, they're, they're the high, one of the highest rates of gonorrhea in the world of around about 1,000 to 100,000. Whereas in our metro areas, they're around about 90 to 100,000 population. So we were trying to understand what was going on in these two different sort of health jurisdictions and our genomic epidemiology there has shown us that what we see is a huge amount of national and international travel associated gonorrhea in metropolitan and rural areas. Whereas out in the remote areas, we're seeing that they have a unique um, set of strains that are unique, interestingly, to Australia. And they haven't been uh, in, put into the genetic record elsewhere as, as, as of yet. So at the moment, they look remarkably unique. And so we think that the first introduction of gonorrhea into those communities uh, occurred, we don't know when, maybe these might be really early strains from early settlement, we don't know and that they have continued to circulate in those communities without sort of moving outside of those networks, whereas in the, in the urban areas we see waves of antimicrobial resistant strains being introduced, but also waves of antimicrobial sensitive strains being introduced internationally as well. And, in fact, our last surge in case numbers in our metro area was from an antimicrobial susceptible lineage from the UK. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating place to, to work in when you look at genomic epidemiology like that and, and trying to, you know, unpick um, how these risk factors work in terms of um, where uh, the disease is occurring, what at-risk groups, and, and then how you go ahead to, to intervene and treat them. Fascinating. And then um, the Marshall Center, you can actually see there's like a little video that, that you showed me that's on YouTube. So if anyone is interested to see what kind of work they, they do, they can go ahead and search it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So, uh, Dr. Kaler, you know, it's it's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come to uh, Let's Talk Micro and talk about this. 
Look, thank you very much again for the invitation. And um, again, if you find any uh, of our, my other colleagues interested, interesting to talk to, please do contact them. I'll uh, recommend you for sure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much and have a, have a great day. Thank you, Lewis. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy listening about all this information about Nyseria with Dr. Kaler. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. Continue bringing that passion to what you do. You know, it's so important. We are coming on a period of two years where we have been overworked. So staying motivated, bringing that passion is very important. Thank you all for the work that you have done. So as always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.